I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. This spin, our weekly all-women of color media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM's studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR, Washington, D.C. We are on air internationally across the United States, right here in Ghana and in London. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, reimagining resistance in this global era of number 45. In part one, from Diane Abbott in the UK to Maxine Waters in the US, black women in the world of politics. And in part two, guess what the new trend in leadership is? Black women. So says Forbes. Really? Black women in leadership, contemporary trend or unacknowledged historical truth. All of that, coming up. Our contributors this week are Evadne Campbell and Dr. Treva B. Lindsay. Evadne Campbell joins us from London. She's a Black British award-winning international journalist, formerly with the BBC, winner of an MBE, named one of Britain's top 100 entrepreneurs. And Evadne is founder and director of Shiloh PR. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay is an African-American scholar, writer, and public intellectual. Dr. Lindsay is an associate professor of women's, gender, and sexuality studies at The Ohio State University and the inaugural Equity for Women and Girls of Color Fellow at Harvard University. Her brand new book, which is out right now, is called Colored No More, Reinventing Black Womanhood in Washington, D.C. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hi, how are you? Testimony. General elections, shock results, and dead wrong polls. Welcome to our current world of politics. In the UK, a general election result wreaked havoc due to the hung parliament. In other words, the Conservatives did not win a clear majority, and Labour gained massively. UK's polls were wrong, as indeed were the US polls, none of whom predicted number 45 would be where and who he is. In this landmine that is the political world, black women are emerging, winning, speaking up and speaking out. In the UK, Diane Abbott, the first black British woman to gain a seat in the House of Commons when she won the Hackney North and Stoke Newington constituency, was just re-elected to her seat. It was the 1987 general election in which Abbott made history. Listen. The result tonight is first and foremost a triumph the Hackney North and Stoke Newington Labour Party, who worked incredibly hard and fought a positive campaign. They fought a campaign on the issues and they fought a campaign designed to unite rather than divide. I have come a long way to stand here before you tonight. And I am aware that a lot of hopes, not just in Hackney, but across the country, ride on our victory tonight. I hope and believe that I can fulfil those hopes. But I also know that nothing can take tonight away 
from the people of Hackney. This campaign and this result has been a victory for faith, a victory for principle and a victory for socialism. And 30 years later, after a series of attacks during the general election campaign, being lambasted and facing what some called racist critique, there was concern that she would lose the seat, having made so much history. Instead, this happened. I do hereby declare that Diane Abbott is duly elected as a Member of Parliament for Hackney South and Stoke Newington constituency. Thank you very much. Hackney North! In her victory speech, Diane Abbott lambasted what she called the Conservatives' campaign of personal destruction and described the victory as vindication. The Conservative Party fought a campaign characterised by the politics of personal destruction. And yet the British people have seen past that and in Hackney they have supported our Labour campaign, which was a positive campaign addressing the issues that concern people here in Hackney, whether it's the state of our NHS, whether it's the housing crisis, whether it's the benefit cuts. We fought a positive campaign here in Hackney and we have been vindicated. Abbott went on to remind the public and the media that Labour was warned of dire political consequences if it ran a campaign of progressive policies. They said that if Labour fought this general election on a progressive manifesto, we would be swept away by a conservative landslide. They said if we fought this general election under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, we would be annihilated. But I am proud to say, even at this point, we have seen how the British people of all ages, of all classes, of all creeds and all colours have rallied to a positive message and rallied to the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you very much. I know about that. Of course, not all Britain's media attacked Abbott. In one opinion piece in the UK newspaper The Independent, writer Sean O'Grady condemned the attacks against Abbott as misogyny, sexism and racism. He wrote, and I quote, she's being subjected to the sort of racial and gender abuse that some of us had thought had been consigned to the past. If you want to experience the deep racism that still pervades our supposedly tolerant society, just have a wander around the internet, unquote. O'Grady goes on to cite examples of all three, misogyny, sexism and racism, from a range of responses on the internet. Essentially, Abbott was being lambasted for failing to perform on two live interviews. In one, she had been asked about Labour policy on increasing the numbers of police, and Abbott floundered with the figures. That one moment ignited vitriolic critique from commentators and politicians alike. In the independent newspaper, O'Grady argues that many politicians do not necessarily have every detail regarding the numbers of a particular policy, and yet they do not face the same level of attack. O'Grady wrote, quote, If you listened, as I did, to the appalling interviews that Karen Bradley, Secretary of State for Culture, and Greg Clark, 
the business secretary did with Justin Webb on the BBC Today programme on police numbers and immigration respectively, you would indeed shudder at the idea of those two being in charge of such important departments. Yet, they are. And they are thought of as competent, but they do not receive anything like the levels of routine abuse and bile chucked at Diane Abbott or other female or black and minority ethnic politicians, unquote. So, Diane Abbott made history by being elected in 1987. She is a black British Caribbean woman, the daughter of a nurse. Another black woman nurse made history during the 2017 general election. Eleanor Smith became the first African-Caribbean woman MP in Wolverhampton. She's also the first black woman president of a major labor union. She headed Unison in 2011 to 2012. Smith's win was historic because the swing seat was once occupied by Enoch Powell. Powell was a white male politician who made what's called the Rivers of Blood speech on April 20th, 1968. In that speech, he was addressing the conservative political center in Birmingham, and he warned of the dire, brutal consequences of what he called unchecked Commonwealth immigration. Here's an excerpt from that speech. In this country, in 15 or 20 years' time, the black man will have the whip hand over the white man. We must be mad, literally mad as a nation, to be permitted the annual inflow of some 50,000 dependents who are, for the most part, the material of the future growth of the immigrant-descended population. It is like watching a nation busily engaged in heaping up its own funeral pyre. From the UK to the US, California's Democratic Congresswoman Maxine Waters was on the House floor defending criticism of Number 45 as patriotic. In one excerpt, she spoke of the need to resist policies that she described as unpatriotic. She said, We have suffered discrimination. We have, dis- we have suffered isolation and undermining. But we stand up for America, oftentimes when others who think they are more patriotic, who say they are more patriotic, do not. When we fight against this president and we point out how dangerous he is for this society and for this country, we're fighting for the democracy. We're fighting for America. We're saying to those who say they're patriotic, but they turned a blind eye to the destruction that he's about to to cause this country. You're not nearly as patriotic as we are. Maxine Waters' comments were being analyzed and discussed across the U.S. media when she came under fire from Fox News. Former Fox anchor Bill O'Reilly spoke insultingly about Maxine's appearance. Listen. I didn't hear a word she said. I was, I was looking at the James Brown wig. <laughs> if we have a picture of James, it's the same. It's the same one. No, right. Okay. And he's not using it anymore. I have to defend her on that. I have to defend her on that. You can't go after a woman's looks. I think she's very attractive. But I didn't say she wasn't attractive. Her I love James pretty. Brown. But it's okay. the same hair. James exactly. Brown are the godfather of soul. Hey. So Those words triggered headlines and on MSNBC's All In With. Chris Hayes, Congresswoman Waters responded. Take a listen. I'm a strong black woman and I cannot be intimidated. I cannot be undermined. I cannot be thought uh, to be a friend of Bill O'Reilly or anybody. And I'd like to say to women out there everywhere, don't allow these right wing 
talking heads, these dishonorable people to intimidate you or scare you. Be who you are. Do what you do. And let us get on with discussing the real issues of this country. Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes have no credibility. Uh, they have been sued by women. They have had to pay millions of dollars out in fines for harassment and other kinds of things. And so we know about that checkered pass. And we also know that when a woman stands up and speaks truth to power, that there will be attempts to put her down. And so I'm not going to be put down. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to stay on the issues. Now, Maxine Waters has been in Congress since 1991. She's an outspoken critic of number 45. She is the most senior of the 12 black women currently serving in the U.S. Congress. And she's a former chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Now, November's election also welcomed first-time black woman Senator Kamala Harris, who sharply questioned U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions during his open hearing on the allegations of collusion between Russia and number 45's presidential campaign. Harris and Waters are two black women in U.S. politics whose voices continue to be raised post the U.S. November 8th election. And from the U.K. to the U.S., black women in the world of politics are standing up, speaking out and refusing to be silenced or distracted from issues of policy when targeted and under fire. So let's talk. Evandi Campbell, let me start with you. Your thoughts. It's really interesting especially when we talk about Diane Abbott, the UK. She's a matriarch when it comes to black women MPs, as you've already said. She's been there since 1987. They've just celebrated 30 years. And I have to uh, say that some of the vitriol that she has undergone during this election is the first time that I can remember that level of personal attack on anyone. And the sad thing, as a journalist myself, the sad thing was I felt there were also biased reporting by the journalist. And, and in some of the ways that they described Diane after those two particular interviews, and they were interviews that, you know, kind of made you wonder what was going on. It has since been revealed that Diane is ill and that she is a diabetic, and that was why she performed particularly badly in those interviews. But anyone who's ever heard her speak, we were all asking the same questions, what's happened to her? And we've been really lucky in this election in terms of the number of black women that's been elected. I just did a quick troll, and this is reflected right across the country, thankfully, Esther. We're talking about, you, you mentioned Eleanor in Wolverhampton. Of course, that's particularly ironic, her win. But women have been in Peterborough, Newcastle, Edmonton. Black women have won. So black women are really, really, this 2017, somehow, Women have really stepped up, and black women in particular have gone into politics. And again, that I have to give some thanks to the Operation Black Vote, which is a campaign group that for, for years and years have been campaigning to increase participation of BAME in politics. So I have to say that's beginning to bear fruit too. Yes. And so BAME is a term used in UK politics and it stands for Black and Minority Ethnic. And it's always it's kind of used all the time. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay, your thoughts? I'm thinking about this in this context of Black women across the world being able to break 
down certain barriers that have existed and continue to exist, quite frankly, as we see the way black women are treated once they're in these offices. So on one hand, we're talking about access to political power within these systems and being able to represent communities in effective and healthy ways, quite honestly, for these communities, if we're talking about this across all levels of systemic injustice and how these systems tend to treat minorities, women, queer-identified folks, a range of people on the margins. But then you get in these spaces and you have some semblance of power as afforded by these offices, and we see the same misogyny, anti-black racism, sexism, patriarchy playing out in these different ways with these different figures. And so the question becomes, how do we address that within the system, also holding all of these politicians accountable and being fair in how we assess these moments, but also say this system has some really big issues and the ways in which it's covered, talked about, and discussed traffic in those same logics of sexism and misogyny and anti-blackness. So when black women get to these positions, and I'm so thankful for the work of groups like that were mentioned earlier and other initiatives about women leading here in the States, and particularly women of color and black women more specifically, what happens once they get there? What is the treatment that they have? What is the voice that they're allowed to have? What is the power that is afforded to these women that comes with these offices? And that, to me, is a grave concern as I see the vilification of these women, the way the media handles, the kind of spectacular nature when these women push back against power, push back against injustice, push back against being characterized unfairly, and the way that they can be spun into being any number of stereotypes that follow this long history of racism and sexism against Black women. Patriarchy sexism and racism, they are indeed global beasts. And it is particularly ironic when I think about Congresswoman Waters being attacked by Bill O'Reilly, a man who was a major part of the machine, the Republican media machine that is Fox News, who for decade upon decade had been sexually harassing women and had been forced out of Fox as a result of that, and who's the CEO of that same station, Roger Isles, was equally kicked out of Fox News because of sexual harassment, violation of women, sexual violence. And so there's a particular irony for me about black women who, for example, perform poorly in an interview, being subjected to the kind of vitriol and bile that men who have for decades violated women are not subject to. And I really think the disparity and the the cancer of the manifestations of racism when it comes to the world of politics and party politics has been kind of on fleek this particular season. Of course, we have two realities. We have this global reality of the rise and rise of the white diaspora. We certainly had that in the UK with the Brexit result. Thankfully, the election of Macron in France kind of paused what felt like this kind of tidal ways of white nationalist movements, political movements on the rise across Europe. But of course, with um, number 45, we have that same world of white male supremacist mentality and reality kind of permeating that world of politics. And so it makes me think of two things, structures rather than people. So not just the individual treatment of these black women, as you've both said, is reflective of 
institutional practices that are gazillions of years old, sadly. And so when we think about these political structures, I always think about political power as limited power, but power nonetheless, which is why voting becomes really important, that there are things that you can achieve as a result of political power that make real differences to the lives of people, particularly marginal women and women of color. And so those structures, those policies matter. And with both the UK and the US, when it comes to the parties that these two women are part of, Diane Abbott and Congresswoman Maxine Waters, we're seeing these pushes for a more progressive set of policies because there are kinds of shambles for them both. We certainly know within Labour in the UK, Jeremy Corbyn was fighting his own party a lot throughout the campaign. And that must have impacted the election result as stunning as the result was, the hung parliament result was. And certainly within the US with number 45, it feels like an ongoing implosion. Of course, we're just in the midst of the testimony of Jeff Sessions. We just heard from Comey as well. And so when you think about these imploding what feels like imploding political structures. And we think about the importance of resistance for black people and black folk and people of color finding a way, even as these implosions happen. Evadne, I wonder what that looks like for you in the UK. We're now in the midst of coalition building and coalition discussions. But what does that look like in this moment where you have these victories for black women on the one hand, but what feels like a Labour Party in chaos on the other? I think that going back to to some of what you've just said in terms of the tidal wave of change that we had been witnessing since Brexit, and I think what that has done is opened the window to a certain element of our community who feels that it is now acceptable and it is now okay for them to come out of the woodworks and to behave and to call people whatever they choose to, and all of their hatred and bile is now coming out. What we have seen with this latest election is thankfully a particular surge from young people who have looked at what's been going on And it very much stemmed from Brexit. They saw what was happening as a result of Brexit, and and they really came out. Hundreds of thousands of young people registered to vote for this election who had never voted in their lives. And it's because they, thankfully, had seen the tide, the change in, in the way people were behaving, and like you say, some of the institutional behavior that people had suddenly had gone on the ground I think we must never forget and never believe that racism had had improved and things were better. Really, what had happened had gone underground. And as a result of Brexit and then what happened in the U.S. with the election of Trump, a lot of people started coming back up. And this is what we then saw. We've had recent, the mayoral election not so long ago. That's the first time in this country that I can remember where we saw campaigning that was personal. And again, someone, we've got a Muslim mayor, and, and he got some vitriol based on his ethnicity, his religion, and so on. And this is what's happened with Diane. Diane's now come out as the older stateswoman of politics, and so they felt that she was fair game. And sadly, because of what's happened with her, she went through a lot of that and got all of that. In this country, I think there's been an awful lot that's happened in recent times with the Black Lives Matter and so on that has actually motivated black people in this country to stand up and become more politically active with a small p but much more politically active and thousands and thousands of women who were perhaps not even fans of diane 
came out in support of Diane. You know, they formed all kinds of groups to support Diane because people felt that, no, we cannot stand by and allow women and black women to be treated in this way because of people's racist views. And I, and I think that this will not be tolerated. And, and, and we know black women have always been very much at the forefront of any campaigning and any change in behavior. We only have to look at what Stephen Lawrence's mom, Doreen, was capable of when we talked about equality. Black women will not stand by and allow this new view, or was not even new, but this confidence that these people seem to have got in that they feel they can come out and say whatever they wanted to say and treat people however they want to treat people. Um, Just to pick up on something, we talk about women in power and and the support system that's there for them. I think that's probably one of the heartening things about this particular election is the number of black women. So no longer do we only have a handful so the support when they're in that environment is, is limited. If these women, and we, we hope that these women will come together to be support network for each other because they will, their powers will be very limited, if at all, if they do not stand together. Because there's no point having five black women or six black women if they don't stand together because we've still got only 32% women in parliament. So despite the celebration, and this is not just black women, this is women, there are still only 32% in our parliament in this country. So we're a long, long way. And if you think we're a long way with women, then we're even further down the line with black women coming into politics. So we've still got a long way before we have any real clout and before we can make any real significant changes in this country. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay. As history-making, as some of these moments are both in the UK and even in the US. I think about Senator Kamala Harris and she's only the second black woman elected to the US Senate, period, like in the history of the Senate. Um, So that also says something quite um, damning about these political systems. And as, as what's been said before, this idea of what it means to actually gain power in these systems without a concentration of folks moving towards justice, moving towards equality, moving towards challenging systems that have been exclusionary and disproportionately um, negatively impacting communities of color, Muslim communities, women, etc. I think that's really important to think about and to think about what it means to hold um, even those who look like us who were championing accountable in that moment. So thinking about the interview, asking good questions that aren't rooted in racism and sexism, but saying, hey, what does this mean? You know, what does this mean with this person? What can we push our elected officials to do to not only represent our interests, but actually challenge the systems that are anti our interest in this? And I think black women quite often are doing that work in these positions. Our elected officials are quite often battling such an uphill struggle, uphill battle to do that kind of work. And so they're forced to be resilient. They're forced to be accountable in ways that, frankly, no one else is. The standard by which we must achieve is so much higher than everyone else's. So I think about this in terms of support more than just numbers, more than just ongoing concentration of power, but challenging these actual systems that make that almost impossible to form in the first place, but then 
sustain in a long-term sense. So how do we continue that pipeline? How do we make the pipeline more robust? How do we challenge the system? And how do we as voters, as constituents, hold everyone in these systems accountable to speaking for black women, to putting the interests of black women at the forefront of these causes? Because often when you put black women at the center of these conversations, you're really getting at the heart of what injustice looks like in any given moment. I'm still stunned that Senator Kamala Harris is only the second black woman senator elected. Is that right? That is correct. <laughs> wow. Wow. That is extraordinary. When I, have, when I first heard that statistic, I thought, is that a mistake? Like she's in the whole of the history of Congress. So that's like a moment to just breathe and pause and say, wow, extraordinary. I think about two things. I think about the reality that in the UK... Theresa May really does align herself with many of Number 45's policies. And that part of what the world needs to come together and understand is that these campaigns that are run on anti-immigration rhetoric, on this rhetoric that is hateful and hurtful and harmful, is actually bad for everyone. There isn't this place, unless, of course, you're a rich white man. That is literally the only people, person and people that these policies serve. But the rest of the world is made worse by the implementation of any of these policies. And so I want us to think a bit about the notion of resistance and accountability, because certainly with the Brexit vote in the UK, the world was stunned. And the campaign was this campaign about immigration is bad, immigration is bad, immigration is bad, immigration is taking your jobs, the reason you can't get a future, the reason you can't get an education. It's all because of immigration. Those brown and black people over there are the reason for your current paralysis. So just as with the US campaign, by number 45, there was this deflecting from the rich white male elite and rich, often white male-led corporations who have steadily gained wealth decade upon decade upon decade and who have played Russian roulette with the economy, causing the kind of global economic collapse that put so many of us in this economic hole out of which people like May and Number 45 took advantage. And the fear, the genuine fears, the plunging job markets, the imploding educational opportunities and the spiraling prices, all of those things were like a cauldron out of which the politics of fear and the politics of hate work really well. So then my question becomes, Trevor, you spoke about black women and this is historically, always having to find a way to make something work, even as they are on the receiving end of so much bile and vitriol. But that also when it comes to what happens within party politics, the willingness to take decisions that are about thinking about a future beyond even your personal reality. And there are no perfect candidates. Nobody is claiming that Corbyn is perfect in comparison to May or that the Democrats are perfect in comparison to the Conservatives. We have a big global political mess. But there are some messes that are way worse and far more dangerous than others. And so in the end, it becomes about the people's accountability process. In other words, us being far more engaged across the board. Now, Vadna, you spoke about the UK being more engaged, hence this phenomenal turnout by the 18 to 25-year-olds. That inspires me because it makes me think 
at least when it comes to party politics, the engagement of far more people creates an accountability process that I think is part of how we need to reimagine resistance in this moment. This is not a moment for apathy or giving up, even though those moments occur and we feel them, but that the fight needs to kind of come through and come back strong. What does that fight look like for you in the UK in this moment? In this moment for people who have always been interested in politics and have always been activists in some way, people like myself, you feel heartened because we were going through a phase where we just felt like young people weren't engaging and had given up and just felt that they couldn't change the status quo. But this election has, for some reason, Jeremy Corbyn has managed to engage, motivate, and to mobilize young people. And I think that the tide has changed. And no longer will any particular part, if you saw some of the policies, for instance, that were in the manifesto from the Conservatives, were actual policies that attacked their core supporters. There were policies because, as a rule, generally, the older population would always vote conservative. So very much they have courted them in the past with all of the policies have been aimed at courting and keeping that. And for the first time, the majority of the policies were actually the policies that would impact on that. And that was because they became complacent and assumed those people would continue to vote for them. What Corbyn did, recognized, the thing is, let's be fair, he had very little to lose. His party was imploding. Lots of his shadow ministers had all resigned and had said they, you know, they didn't think he was going to, they were going to be wiped out. And so they kind of left him. They stabbed him in the back, really, and left him. But he somehow managed to engage young people. So I think we will see in this country a complete, we know we're going to face another election very soon, whether it will be this year or whether it will be at the end of the Brexit negotiations, we're not sure, but that's going to happen. There's no way we're going to have a five-year term without another election. So I think what we will see is how people engage with the electorate will be completely different. And I think people will begin to recognize that their votes count and that they do have power and that they can influence what happens. So I do think in this country things will have changed and hopefully it will change for the best because the policies, people will have to think very carefully about just throwing policies out there now and assuming that they can count on votes. Even the Labour who thought they could count on the black vote have had to realise that my son voted for the first time in his life, and he could have voted lots of times, and he became so engaged and read the manifestos for the parties and made a decision on who he was voting for based on what he read in the manifestos and what he heard from the leaders. So as a young black man, he's not just voting for Labour because that's the given. So every politician will now have to think carefully about what they're doing. I don't think we in London in particular have had a real issue with knife crime and gun crime. We've lost so many of our young people this year. And what I'm saddened about, not once throughout this election campaign did we hear any of them address what are they going to do to tackle knife and gun crime within the communities. So those are issues I think that black people will now begin to say, what are the issues that we have concerns about that we need the politicians to be telling us how they're going to tackle it. Things are going to be different, and I think we're going to see a completely different election within the next year or or 18 months, whenever we go back to the polls, which everyone is saying will happen sooner rather than later. You mentioned about Brexit. 
and the anti-immigration stance that they campaigned on. Just last week, there were a report came out that 97% reduction in the number of applicants from Europe to come and work in this country as nurses. That's a 97% reduction, and we haven't even begun negotiating Brexit yet. So I think well, a lot of the people who voted to come out of Europe are now going to be seeing what that actually is going to mean to this country in the long run. And that's also another factor we think that played in this election, that people realize that actually coming out of Europe may not be such a great idea. In this country, a lot has changed over the last couple of years through Brexit and through this general election, and it's going to be a different ball game for all of us, black and white, all of us. So the UK has just come out of its election, but in terms of the US, you all have had number 45 for a while, and it just really does feel like a roller coaster of disaster. We're in the midst of Jeff Sessions and his testimony post Comey, the former FBI director's testimony. And there feels like an elevated level of engagement when it comes to issues of policy because of the ways in which that policy detrimentally impacts so many millions of Americans, immigrants, undocumented in all kinds of ways. So closing word to you, Dr. Treva B. Lindsay, what does resistance continue to look like as the U.S. is governed by what feels like and seems like this kind of imploding force of politics that is allowing megalomania and egoism and ignorance and mediocrity to override the very real necessity of actually governing the superpower of the world. Closing word to you. I wonder about this myself. I don't want to seem pessimistic necessarily in my outlook, but I do think what is intriguing about this moment is these different kind of groups of people who've been attacked, assailed, targeted under this current administration, finding synergy with one another, finding connections with one another, beginning to understand and see how important it is for us to coalesce around this general framework of injustice. I think that that's really important in this moment so that, you know, when you saw something like no ban, no wall, right, that was connecting the Muslim ban, which now our president has formally named as such and tweeted as such, although he said it wasn't at first, and these efforts to build a wall. I think that that connection was so important to make and seeing those other connections in terms of the environment, seeing that in terms of LGBTQIA rights, seeing people finally understanding some of what people within the movement for Black Lives have been saying about the ways in which police engage us, the ways in which the state neglects particular communities, seeing how health care is under attack here. So I think all of these important issues are things that have to be coalesced around so that we can have a broad framework for justice that still seems to center those even on the margins of the margins. I think that will be important to see how are those most vulnerable, who've always been most vulnerable, deeply impacted by these policies. The time of saying we will be resilient, we will be strong, we will combat against that, all of that is really important. But it's really important to think about radical collectivity and new ideas of solidarity that are anchored in a real belief that injustice is a threat at every level at this point and that so many of us are under siege. And although there are those of us who've been fighting well before this administration and have been acknowledging 
systemic inequality and injustice and all of that prior to this moment, I think it's really essential that we begin to have some peer education among ourselves, among those of us who've been working in different justice spaces about how we further connect our struggles, how we further push ourselves to say, we're not going to let up. We're going to be unrelenting that our coalition grows and that our coalition is real, that we get through the fractures, that we talk about the discomfort, that we talk about the dynamics of inequity and injustice and privilege and marginalization, even within justice circles. These things are really important in this moment, and I am hopeful that we can do that in a way that makes this administration scared. Or yesterday when watching the hearings with Jeff Sessions, he said this was making him nervous. Well, they all need to be nervous. They need to be nervous. They need to be on edge about the fact that constituents are realizing that those we have elected, for the vast majority of them, are not holding up our interests, are not a government for and by the people, and are not a government that is committed to seeing justice and freedom as something, as a lived reality for everyone here, right? And that also includes how we move through the world globally as well, that our imperialistic endeavors, that our very colonialistic endeavors are quite uh, disparaging as well. So we need to think about that both domestically and our approach globally. Black women in politics dealing with the challenges of racism, sexism, and misogyny from the predominantly white male world of politics. So... What should we do with the O'Reillys and the misogynists and the number 45s of the world? Well, Bob Marley has an idea. We're gonna chase those crazy ballets out of town. of number 45 and the UK general election results being seen as a disaster for UK Prime Minister Theresa May from the UK to the US one question is being asked Why should we trust in politicians And why should we vote at their elections When there is no place for we, you and me In the secret society they call us minorities Why should we trust in politicians And why should we vote 
about trust and much more about accountability, resistance and engagement. So vote black women did in huge numbers in the US elections for Clinton. And in the UK, the election turnout showed huge numbers from the 18 to 25 year olds, young, black and brown and poor people who wanted the world to know what it's like here in England. Here in England now, we got bloods and crips. I'm ashamed and embarrassed to have to admit. Our grandparents got chased because they were black. Now we kill each other for colours and union jack. This is not the States, no American dream. Just a British nightmare with a similar theme. Same scheme, same fiend, same end to the dream. Same church, same hurt, same mob with the screams. With the only difference being there's no opposites here. No chicken, no Simmons, no positives here. It is obvious we are not prospering here. What's horrible? I don't know if it's possible here. Our grandparents came here invited by her majesty, tragically, just to be treated like savages. No blacks, no Irish, and of course no dogs. And if it ain't clean the toilets, then of course no Jobs, with the teddy boys attacking us and calling us wops Boys in blue, attitude, apparently that's not odd And here we are, 50 years later, nothing's improved In fact, we've gone back a step, like we're tracing our roots Here we are, 50 years later, nothing's improved We've gone back a step, but we ain't tracing our roots You know? You don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going That was part one of reimagining resistance in this era of global politics From the UK to the US you're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly international all-women-of-colour podcast. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors this week are Dr. Treva B. Lindsay and Evadne Campbell. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, New York, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in Ghana on Star FM 103.5 and in London on ABN UK Radio. And we're online. Subscribe to The Spin One on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. How did you make a diamond a billion years of pressure? And the diamond is found where? The first we've been the rock. So no matter where we're at, there's a diamond inside of us. One mic, one hour, three black women, and we go global. We keep it fly. We honor the smart because smart is sexy. And with Evadne joining us from London and me being born in London, plus our focus on UK black women, it's only right that Estelle shares another side to London City, where she was raised in the 1980s. I grew up in the 1980s in a four-bedroom house. My family, my grandma, three or four aunties, uncles and brothers in and out of prison daily. There was life like you never seen Granny taking extra paper income Dinner time, it was tipping 18 
boil a big pot of water on the stove to take a bath Rub my face with olive oil, all my mates used to laugh And my cousins moved out, and we all got divided Starting to get older, I seen God providing I seen 50 pound last for three months solid I got my first pair of nights, we were still eating porridge Me and my cousin used to play Melanchim, practicing dancing Coming down the stairs and ting I touched Africa and came back darker Knowing myself, feeling my roots a little bit harder 1980, yeah, that God made me Time for part two of Reimagining Resistance in this moment of global politics and shifting landscape. There's a new trend in leadership, and it is black women. So says Forbes, the American business magazine that features articles on finance, industry, investing, and marketing topics. And it reports on related subjects like technology, communication, science, politics, and law. In an article that is part of their Change the World series, they celebrate the leadership of black women in a range of industries and sectors. The piece on their site reads, and I quote, Black women are beginning to emerge as leaders across all industries, academia, government, and nonprofit organizations. This trend is particularly evident in the creation of new businesses. The 2016 American Express Open State of Women-Owned Businesses report found that women-owned businesses have grown five times faster than the national average since 2007, fueled primarily by Black and Hispanic women. Black women face well-documented adversities, ranging from socioeconomic hurdles to unconscious bias and discrimination. What we heard from many of these presenters is that they have used adversity to fuel their determination, hone their talent, and build their resilience. And now they are using their success to raise their visibility, share their experiences, and inspire more Black women to take up the challenges of leadership. Hmm. As Forbes celebrates the apparent beginning of an emerging Black woman leadership, I ask, really though, really? Are black women beginning to emerge? Is that a contemporary truth or a bad read of a historical record? Celebration matters, and there are wonderful black women whose work and accomplishments are highlighted on the Forbes site. That I respect and applaud. Context matters too. And don't we need to place contemporary moments within a historical context? Is this really a trend or new, or does it continue a history of leadership recognized or not due to adversity, racism, and discrimination? So Forbes paints a picture of contemporary leadership of black women as an emerging trend. Meanwhile, history offers a whole nother narrative. And interestingly, the motto of Forbes magazine is the capitalist tool. So let's talk contemporary trends with black women leadership or a bad reading of a historical record. Is Forbes having a Columbus moment? Dr. Teresa B. Lindsay, your thoughts? So I'm thinking about this in terms of kind of contrasting things of growth that we have in this moment around leadership and the, and the trend of leadership and not being a trend and black women showing up in these ways. And then on the other hand, looking at like the black women's support and seeing all these ways that black women are still marginalized and all of that. And I go back to this word of resiliency. Being resilient is something that we are compelled to do and that we are thriving in 
spite of. We are succeeding in light of. And it's just how do we break through those barriers? How do we get beyond that? How do we move beyond the place where imagine what black women could do were these barriers not intact, (laughs) were these barriers seemingly not so immovable, impervious? Because having to think about black women's leadership as a trend or something that is to be celebrated in particular ways, but it also tells us to me that it's something that I'm lamenting and also deeply mournful about because of all that I know that goes into black women excelling at that level and also being present in their lives and on our lives as representatives for our causes, for justice, for demanding democracy, for pushing us to be our better selves in all of these different spaces. But at what cost to us is that coming? Right? That That is what I'm curious about in this moment, that what seems so impervious, what seems so immovable are what make us so resilient, and that resiliency has deep and profound cost. Rodney Campbell, I think of that about this in the UK context as well, where particularly with the migration and the Windrush generation, you had a whole generation of black women who contributed to the building of the National Health Service. We know that Diane Abbott is the daughter of a nurse. Eleanor Smith is a nurse. These extraordinary women who built an entire National Health Service was built on their backs, on their labor, but that leadership was unrecognized. And so we talk about these contemporary moments of black women leadership, but don't recognize that whether they're the daughters of nurses or nurses themselves, there's been a kind of leadership that has gone unacknowledged in the same way that Forbes has offered a contemporary context minus a historical context. Your thoughts? I just find it really interesting that Forbes, because for, I don't know, it, it just makes me so angry to a degree as to when do people recognize us and whatever we're doing, it's never acknowledged until some establishment puts its stamp on it. Black women have been in leadership positions for a very long time. And in fact, if you really look through history to do with any resistance, any movement, black women have been there. I don't know if you're aware of a recent television program called Guerrilla, which is supposed to be based on the Black Panther movement in the UK and how they've written out the role of black women in that campaign and and where black women were leading, but they have written them out of it. It's just so frustrating that we're now having somewhere like Forbes telling us there's a trend in black women leadership. It's not a trend. Black women have been in positions of leadership for a very long time. It's just that the powers that be have chosen not to recognize it. But now that they think they can put a rubber stamp on it and say, yes, black women are in leadership. You mentioned the pioneers who came on Windrush. Those women who came on Windrush, yes, they have achieved so much, but not necessarily recognized by by the powers that be. So I, I just think that I don't take any notice of such articles because I think when we start deciding to acknowledge our leaders based on when magazines or newspapers or publications like Forbes endorse them, we're not writing our own history. And we need to acknowledge through our own history how many women have been, you and I are aware of, lots of women in the media, Claudia Jones and so on, who've passed on women who've who've been leaders in this country, but not recognized as leaders in the UK. I haven't really been conscious of who Forbes now think are these women in leadership. But in this country, I am thankful to say that there are people who are voicing and who are acknowledging and who are recording 
women who have been in leadership since mass immigrants came into this country. So I don't, it's not a trend. We have, as black women, have had to take on leadership positions, even at times when we don't necessarily want to. But it's something that we've had to do and we have done in an exemplary fashion. So it's, I don't see a trend. I just see that people haven't recognized those that have led the way in the past and are now deciding who, when to acknowledge black women who are taking a forward step and who are out there and showing that they are kind of leading within their own community. Let the church on the mic say amen. <laughs> amen, hallelujah, and ashe. So I think we can agree that Forbes was having a bit of a Christopher Columbus moment. And yes. who was he? Well, let Burning Spear explain. Christopher Columbus is a jambler's lion. Christopher Columbus is a jambler's lion. Yes, John. saying that Forbes are damn blasted liars, but we are saying that context matters and history really does matter. So Forbes' motto is the capitalist tool. And in this moment, capitalism certainly rules the world. But what if black women ruled it? What if I ruled it? If I ruled the world, imagine that. I free all my The way to be paradise life relaxing Black, Latino, and Anglo-Saxon Amani exchange the range Cast, lost, tribal, Shabazz Free at last, brand new whips to crash Then we laugh in the illopath The villa houses for the crew, how we do Trees for breakfast, dime sexes have been stretches So many years of depression make me vision The better living, type of place to raise kids in So that's your show Thank you to Dr. Treva B. Lindsay and Evadne Campbell Thanks ladies Thank you Thank you so much Amazing I want to hear myself Thank you to the Spin Production team. That is sound editor David McKeever, also known as McKeever Magic, and distributor Loretta Rucker and the AAPRC. Subscribe to The Spin on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. The Spin is your hour of global talk where smart is sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armas. Universal equality, responsibility, policy to survive economically. Some people do it comically. Fruits of freedom, equality. Invest your money properly. People owe me your policy. Intellectual property, stealing, stolen, commodity, souls controlling, robbery, This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.